Welcome to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon, your host. We are broadcasting from Des Moines, Iowa, the cultural and culinary crossroads of America. A quick shout out to some of our local business partners here in the Des Moines metro. Noche Jazz and Cabaret, located on Walnut Street just south of the Sculpture Park. That's Des Moines' premier location for jazz and cabaret. That's Noche. Thanks also to Hawk Restaurant at East 5th and Walnut. They're doing takeout now, folks. Hawk Restaurant serves 100%, actually close to 100%, 90% say, food from Iowa farmers and producers year-round. Check them out, folks. Hawk Restaurant, doing takeout as we navigate this coronavirus crisis. All right, again, welcome to the Fallon Forum. Later in the program, we'll be talking uh, with uh, a couple local business folks in terms of how the crisis is affecting them. We'll also talk with Adam Krauss about the uh, extent to which uh, homegrown food initiatives are picking up a lot of steam, in part because of climate change, in part because of the uh, coronavirus situation. But I first want to welcome to the program Dr. Stephen Goldman. He's a psychiatrist, a former public health official, and an epidemiologist. Dr. Goldman, welcome to the program. Oh, it's good to be here. Thanks. Yeah, and uh, and you um you have a perspective on the psychiatric angle of the uh, coronavirus crisis. And again, you know, without digging real deep into it immediately, I can see how that would be a really important conversation because so many people are being disconnected from the things that make up their normal lives. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, it is amazing what's, uh, what's happened in the last three weeks. And it's, you know, comes in so many different sectors. And there's been, since there's no coordinated national program where it's been left mainly to the states and local jurisdictions, there are differences between areas. You know, we live in Maryland, so we've been um, very similar to what's going on in Washington, D.C., um, New York, California, whereas other places, like, for example, our, our niece and her husband live in Denver. We were talking to them the other night, and they were under less restrictions in many ways than we are, with some restaurants even still being open. Is that a mistake? And Is Colorado making the wrong call? Um, well, it's funny, because Charles took a look, and he said, and found out that actually they really were under some of the same restrictions. But well, let, let me bring up one issue that's, that's been right off the bat, and this is um, something that you know the, the pros in the field, including the former head of the CDC, uh, Tom Fredan, made a point, was the decision to close the, close the schools was not recommended by the CDC. Okay. And um, this is an issue, and as a matter of fact, as, as I would like to mention to people, if they have access to it, today's New York Times, that is Monday, the 23rd today, uh, a superb edition with very good information, a very good description about the um, steps that should be taken, the now ongoing debate, which is always positive to have done, about what is being done, the rapidly accumulating information about the virus is being received from around the world, and um, which, again, brings up an issue you and I have talked about before, is where you're getting your information from, the validity of that information, and I appreciate you mentioning that I used to be a public, I was a, literally a public health official with the U.S. government. I worked for the Food and Drug Administration, and I was empowered to speak for the agency on matters of uh, medical product safety. And I was very proud of that type of work. 
And I know that people at the agencies, at the CDC, at the Department of Health and Human Services, and also the local um, uh, state and local public health officials, that's what they do for that's what they do for a living. They're civil service. Yeah. And that's their job. And their kind of expertise, and you're seeing one of the great examples of that is with Dr. Tony Fauci. Yeah, who at that? You know, uh, you know, do you know Fauci? Yeah, I met him first when I was at the FDA in yeah. the in the early nineties, and and he's a Trump he's a Trump you know, appointee. And you said earlier you were you 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 described no, it as no no no, to, no 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 Dr. Fauci is not a Trump appointee. Oh, he's not. Okay, I'm, I'm 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 wrong then. No, no, no. He has been at NIH for many decades. He was okay. involved with HIV. He's been running the uh, Center for. Um, uh, Algerian immunology now for oh god decades. Well, and he very he, now he very he very um, evidently yet tactfully disagrees with Trump on some of the president's assessment about, for example, the imminence of having a, a, a vaccine. Uh, yes, I, I'm I'm a little surprised that Trump hasn't found a way to try to fire him or oust him or somehow get him out of that position because, of course, if you don't totally agree with President Trump, you're not on his side. Well, I will point out something about the president that I've mentioned to other people and said they hadn't noticed it. Ed, have you noticed that the people that he tends to, how can we put it diplomatically, uh, go after or mention are people who are political appointees or members of the military? How often have we seen people who are actually in the civil service being uh, recipients of such treatment. But how often have we seen a member of the, an element of the civil service so prominently displayed publicly day after day because of, you know, something unprecedented like this? I mean, this is unprecedented. Well, 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 pandemics are not unprecedented. I mean, don't forget, we've had H1N1, we had MERS, we, uh, Ebola. But there's never, there's there's never been a response like this. Well, those of us who are not alive in 1918, with, well, okay. <laughs> um, with worldwide, which, yeah. by the way, is not completely analogous because the highest attack rate for the Spanish flu was actually younger people, which, of right. course, is quite different now with what we're seeing with the coronavirus. Um, but the point that I'm making is there's a reason why we have a civil service in the United States that is not under political considerations. They are apolitical. Right. And... That is one of the great protections we have in the United States. And again, I was civil service. I was not a political appointee at the FDA. I was, I was, you know, an employee of the government. I was in the executive branch, but I was not a political appointee at that time. The only political appointee at the Food and Drug Administration was the commissioner. Everybody else was either commission corps or straight civil service. So, so let's get to the crux of this. I mean, this uh, the response around the country varies. We'd have no, we, like you said, we have no uniform. Uh, national response. It's kind of left up to the states to decide what to do large, largely. And so um, you have states that are being much more uh, restrictive on, on movement, Illinois, New York, California. You have states that are more liberal, shall we say, in terms of what they're requiring people to do, Colorado being one, Iowa being one too. Although even in Iowa, we've seen significant um, crackdowns on, on activity. Uh, so uh, how is that I mean, that's got to have an impact psychologically on the population. And to be nervous and not knowing whether you've got this disease, whether whether you've got a different ailment that might require you to go to the hospital and and suddenly there's no you know capacity for them to attend to you there. Now, we don't have that problem in Iowa yet. 
But every indication is we should expect that and prepare for it. Well, th this is a point that was made several times in today's New York Times and has been increasingly made as the point is that if we if we have a two-week, I don't want to use the word lockdown because people still are allowed outside their homes, they can exercise, they can go to a pharmacy, they can go to food stores. That's not a, that's not a total lockdown in that sense. But if we follow for two weeks, that is where people do maintain uh, the, uh, the social distancing, which is correct. If that is done, that gives us tremendous information over the next two weeks. Because don't forget, the incubation period is felt to be 14 days. You would have a much better sense of who would be infected in terms of what symptoms might be manifesting at that point. We will not be doing universal testing because at this point that is no longer viable because uh, there are only people who are recovering. One of the essences of getting over pandemics, as you know, is herd immunity, which will start to appear in relation to that. So the kinds of things you're talking about are actually following the good rules of public health and dealing with the pandemic, is following social, um, social distancing and good public health techniques that are not draconian. You can do both. Okay, but still, we've got uh, a lot of people are going stir crazy right now. For example, I mean, no, well, that's, that's a figure yes, of speech. Are, but I think, but Ed, wouldn't you think that if people knew the, the biggest problem now is it's open ended, right? And that's causing it's open ended. You're getting conflicting information. I mean, I'm a news junkie, and I'm not watching the news more than a limited amount of time because of the twenty four seven cycle. Because the information, the validity of the information does vary depending on who's providing it. There are political, there are political things being intermixed with interests that have no place in public health. Um, and you have the information coming in, literally daily, is giving us a better idea about how to handle. And again, there are some things that are positive. For example, one thing I mentioned um, before we went on in today's Times is the data that's coming in from, from China and other places about the actual clusters, the fact that family clusters as opposed to widespread uh, manifestations of illness, that's a very important finding. Right. And that's very different than the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic. These are not the, these are not the same um, behavior, if you will, in terms of the viruses. That's very important information. But the, the virus is already mutated, though. The virus, virus will continue to mutate. Do we have any sense of where it's going to go and what and what new type of havoc it might cause? Well, I'm not a virologist. I can simply go by what I know about the uh, epidemiology of, of pandemics, by um, what we've seen in the past, which are often which are often um, harbingers. What we're learning more about this particular family of viruses, as you know, the behavior it's showing as opposed to some of the others. That's all accumulating information. That's that's what should be driving the public health um, interventions that we have. That should be driving it, not political considerations. Right. That's number one. Okay. Secondly, um, we have some positive factors that are coming out, as I mentioned, in terms of what the actual attack rate is, who is actually at greater risk, which is, which is clearly showing up in terms of that. They seem to be predominantly, as we've heard before, older folks, but even within that, 
age group is people with, some, with underlying illnesses, underlying immunological considerations. And there's so, also something else which... So, so, oh, I, I want to, before we run out of time, I really want to get back to my, my question about uh, the psychological impacts on people who, unlike you and me, may not tune out to the 24-7 news cycle. They may be, they may be having the TV on all the time. Coronavirus is all they're hearing about. They're nervous, they're panicking, uh, they're worried. Whether it's going to be... It's already been a week and two weeks in some places where, they, where people have been not locked down, but really shut out yeah, of a lot of social interactions that they're accustomed to. Right. So, so how, how do people deal with that? What I'm saying is, if we can get a better sense of the fact it is not open-ended, that we're not, potentially, we are not talking about six months, that if we could indeed follow, not having people on a beach on spring break, but people following the um, avoidance recommendations, people not going into um, settings where there is a certain number of people that will then re-expose other people in terms of that. That's number one. But number two, if we can follow the recommended, scientifically-based suggestions and restrictions, gets us more data, it could make this much less of a time under which we will be under these conditions rather than longer. That's the point that I'm getting. If we know something is, is time-limited, as opposed to, you know, one of the greatest fears is, is the unknown, is not knowing how long this is going to go on. Right, and we don't. But we have China as one example. Uh, again, China what now has roughly zero new cases every day. And but that's uh, encouraging news. It's very encouraging, but China used much more extensive uh, controls and suppression yes, than, than we have. We're, for, we're asking... We're not asking for those kinds of restrictions. We don't. But maybe we should do. be. Maybe we should be. I mean, are we um, really are we are we really following the playbook of Italy? And we know we know how that's going. It's not going well at all. Well, by the well, by the way, Italy is already showing. My understanding is the, late, the latest data is they're showing somewhat of a decline, as you know. Um, as my understanding from what I've seen, um, I don't think. And again, I don't know if to use Italy as exactly as analogous to the United States. There are some similarities, as you know. But even the data coming out of Italy is suggesting what I mentioned before. If you know where the clusters are, and one thing I do want to mention before we close, there is, a, there is an intermediary between staying in your homes and being admitted to a hospital. And that's what more of the uh, jurisdictions are looking at, where you have, like the Javits Center in New York, where you have people who need to be isolated, you know, not because they don't want to affect their families, but they're not on respirators. That's the kind of thing which is based on good public health, which, by the way, was done during the 1918 pandemic. Right. Where people were isolated. Now, of course, they didn't have respirators available then. But if we could get people to trust the information they're hearing, to listen to the public health officials, not non-scientific politicians. Right. Well... In terms of that... That's uh, that's good advice. Um, I I pre- we got to run to a break here, uh, Doctor Goldman. So uh, let's wrap it up. Uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, stay safe. Good luck in your work, uh, folks. We've been talking with Doctor Stephen Goldman, uh, epidemiologist, a psychiatrist, and a former public health official about the coronavirus. Uh, thanks again for joining us. Uh, my pleasure. All right, we'll be, we'll be back in a few minutes, folks, to talk more uh, about uh, some of the concerns that are being raised regarding the coronavirus here on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. 
Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market, good food, great community. Across the Des Moines Metro, Ritual Cafe is known for its excellent fair trade coffee and fair trade tea. Ritual Cafe also serves breakfast and lunch and offers an entirely vegetarian menu. This unique venue is also known for its live music and displays of local artwork on the walls. Located on 13th Street between Locust and Grand in downtown Des Moines, Ritual Cafe is open six days a week. Make Ritual Cafe a daily part of your ritual. Noche is the premier home in Des Moines for jazz and cabaret. With its prime downtown location and stylish ambiance, Noche attracts both national acts and local favorites, including Max Wellman, Gina Gedler, Scott Smith, Tina Haas Finley, and Nick Leo. Every Wednesday night, you can enjoy the progressive sounds of one of America's longest running jazz orchestras, the Des Moines Big Band. Noche also offers a world-class cocktail bar and serves a variety of small plates. If you haven't been to Noche, you haven't experienced the fullness of Des Moines' cultural revival. If you have, we're sure you'll be back. Noche, located on Walnut Street, just south of the Sculpture Park in downtown Des Moines. back to the Fallon Forum. A quick shout out to some of our local business partners in the Des Moines Metro. Thanks to Gateway Marketing Cafe at 20th and Woodland, my grocery store and a great place for breakfast, lunch and supper. Although of course now with the coronavirus situation, they're doing takeout. So give them a shout for a takeout order. And again, the grocery store remains open. That's Gateway Marketing Cafe. Thanks also to Story County Veterinary Clinic where Dr. Kim Holding has been treating creatures great and small for over 30 years. That's Story County Veterinary Clinic. All right, welcome back, folks. And later in the program, Adam Krauss joining us and Suman Hook. And right now on the phone with us, because everything we're doing these days is on the phone, is Maria Filippone. She is uh, the owner of Noche Jazz and Cabaret and uh, one of those many small businesses that are feeling the pinch and the impact of the coronavirus crisis. Maria, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, I do know that uh, like many people, like many small business owners, you have found one way to uh, respond to the restrictions on mobility. You uh, staged a, a very impressive live stream of a Max Wellman, Tina Haas Finley concert Friday that as far as I could tell, had a bigger audience than you ever would have had <laughs> in the small space you have available. Yeah, more than we can fit. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Steve Charleston was part of that, too. That's right. He was an amazing bass player. Yes. yes. But yeah. uh, I, I don't imagine you can live stream every single performance. No, we have, a, we have some things in the works. Yeah. We okay. do. So how, how, does so, that, how, how, does that, how does that look for you? Well, uh, we are setting up now as far as everybody's under quarantine we are going to live stream performances every wednesday and saturday night hmm. okay so this wednesday we have rob lombard and tina haas finley 
And then this Saturday, it's Max Wellman's Trio with Max, Steve Charlson, and Wayne Page. Okay. So, yes. And is that a problem for the musicians and staff who do show up, or are they taking the necessary precautions that are recommended? We take our necessary precautions. We're very careful with our distance with each other. We have one, like we had... uh, one bartender the other night just we're trying to um we want to be able to employ and keep paying all of these people who are out of business now artists and um you know our staff or our wait staff bartenders etc so we are trying to find creative ways to um be able to keep paying them so yeah and i imagine that's a challenge uh and, you know, I, I don't know how many, uh, you know, venues like yours, uh, clubs, bars, restaurants that feature music uh, are able to to pull that sort of alternative together. But part of the challenge is on us, on the audience that appreciates the music, that values the, the venue. Um, maybe it's not what we'd like to do. Uh, we'd like to go and be there in person. But uh, if we can get used to participating virtually from home. Exactly. You know, it's, and there's it's, ways, um, we do it, we live stream it on Facebook, and there's a way during the um, performance, while we're live streaming, a way you can donate online. And I hate to say donate, because it's, I mean, we pay, we're paying for a service, we're paying the musicians. I feel like there's a way you can pay for a ticket while we're performing, but of course it's all at people's discretion. They can mm. do it while we're performing or they can buy an e-gift card online and use it for anything in the future shows at the bar, merchandise, whatever. Right. How did how did the concert on Friday do in terms of revenue? It was pretty good. It was good. certainly not like when we're open, but right. I, we need to be able to keep paying um, these musicians and, and yeah. all sorts of people in the service industry. Yeah, and this you, is one you, way we can do it. You certainly so. didn't have people uh, buying drinks <laughs> that night. No, 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 no. So it's hard to say. I mean, I know you're, you're a doctor as well. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I know there are conflicting opinions from the medical profession as to how long we expect this coronavirus crisis to persist and and it's hard to know in that case what impact it's going to have on small businesses but do you have any opinion about that yourself um i don't think i think it's way too early to tell i think we need to have several more days or weeks of this to get numbers to see um the direction of things to see how the curve looks for us so now, and it's just going to take a while to get that data. I mean, it looks now like, you know, number of cases is up so much, but let's be real. I mean, testing has just, it's finally been, you know, it's catching up with, you know, what was actually, what's actually how present it is. Right. So. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I know that here in Iowa and also around the U.S., it's, it's been hard on us. Hard on businesses, hard on people who were stuck in their homes, hard, definitely hard on our medical system. But you just recently came back from, I believe, your fifth trip to Gaza. Mm-hmm. And yes, uh, I, I, I imagine that if your trip had been a few weeks later, you would not have been going. But uh, you went. Well, we had to we had to leave early because of oh. coronavirus. 
So um, we we were supposed to work and leave on March 10th. We entered March 1st, and we were supposed to leave March 10th. We ended up having to leave March 6th um, because there had been confirmed cases in Israel and Tel Aviv and then in West Bank and the West Bank in Bethlehem. And there were at that time no cases in Gaza, but um, they were closing. Israel was closing areas or or crossing um, because of the coronavirus in the country. And then also because of um, a Jewish holiday. Um, And they did not at the time say when they would reopen or if it would be closed for like everybody well we did find out a week ago that they put out a statement they would let foreign nationals through um which we could have stayed but at the time they did not declare that and again gaza is a is a is a community of uh two million people i believe over two million over two million in a space the size of help me out uh, oh okay rhode island is 8.7 times larger than gaza that's our smallest wow. state. And two million and, people, yeah. And Rhode Island has just over a million in population. Wow. So yeah, it's two over two million people living under horrific circumstances, right. living under siege, occupation, and constant um, attacks. And so you've you've got a sub you've got substandard still. infrastructure, substandard medical uh, facilities, a very densely populated uh, community, and uh, if the coronavirus should get out of hand in Gaza, it could be a horrible situation. There, it would be it would be another Nakba, another catastrophe. It could it would be devastating. And um, as of two days ago, there were two confirmed cases in Gaza from two men who came back to Gaza from Pakistan, and they're now quarantined. And I believe it's the hospital in Rafah. Um, so mm-hmm. I'm assuming that they came through the Rafah border, Egypt. So what what is what is do you happen to know what Israel is doing to address uh, the coronavirus? Because the responses around the world have been drastically different from one place to the next. I mean, you compare China or South Korea, uh, Singapore, Malaysia to Italy, Spain, and you've got a world of difference in terms of how it's being approached. I I feel like um, Israel is doing more. Um, Netanyahu is ordering dramatic increase in enforcing restrictions in in the state. Are they doing so, testing in Israel? Uh, I believe so. Okay, and that, does that apply to the Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza as well? I uh, not necessarily. Maybe right. I, I'm not sure. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, uh, again, again, beyond the, I know you went to uh, Gaza. Uh, unprepared for the uh, for the depth of the corona, uh, coronavirus crisis, but well aware of the depth of the ongoing crisis in Gaza. What um, did you learn? Uh, anything else new that we we might want to share with our audience? Um, I learned that um, things are worsening there the situation um the people you can see it more in in them um they're just imagine living under fear and the constant threat of fear and war all the time i mean it it takes a toll on you physically mentally psychically spiritually 
and your health, everything. Um, it, this can't go on forever. Uh, I, I don't want to say they're hopeless because they're not hopeless, but um, it's, I, I see each time I see when I compare this time with the very first time I went, um, it's just, it gets worse each time I, I go. Right. Well, that's, uh, that is, um, that is tragic and, and just all out wrong. There's no reason for it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I know, I know that there are people proposing, uh, solutions and it seems like they're, especially in our country right now, they're, is a deep resistance to the kind of dialogue needed to bring an end to the the segregation that has created uh, these communities. Well, anyway, I'm I, I'm grateful for you taking the time to join us, Maria. And uh, thank you so much. And I, yeah. I really hope that uh, again your, your friends in Gaza uh, fare well in this crisis. And I also hope that you, as a small business owner here in Des Moines. Uh, yes. Don't lose yes, your shirt, so to speak. It's yeah, same. It's wonderful that um, people tuned in and people like donated, like they were buying a ticket, and we we love that. And I want to remind people to do that with so many um, so many small businesses, like Ritual Cafe. It's one of my favorite coffee shops. Rise in Line. Um, all these places they need our business still, and. Right. You can, you know, Grubhub or DoorDash if you don't want to go out and get it. Right. So. Yeah. Good Good advice. Maria, thanks so much for yeah. joining us. Thank you, Ed. Take care. Folks, we've been talking with Maria Filippone. She's the owner of Noche, a, a local physician and a frequent visitor to uh, Gaza where she always shares her information as to what's going on there. Uh, thanks again. We'll be back with more conversation on the Fallon Forum in just a couple minutes. When it's time to entertain, think of Gateway Market to handle all the details. Gateway offers a wide variety of stress-free options like cut-to-order cheese and charcuterie, a delicious olive bar, and a wide variety of chef-prepared dips and spreads. Or let Gateway's catering team take care of the entire event, right down to the wine and beer pairings. Gateway's expert floral designers can even customize the perfect centerpieces. Stop by or visit gatewaymarket.com for more information. Gateway Market, good food, great entertaining. Dr. Kim Holding has over 30 years of experience working with all creatures great and small. Cat, dog, horse, cow, elephant. Well, maybe not an elephant. If you've got a pet elephant, you may be in trouble. Kim's work history is long and deep and her clients stick with her year after year because they know she will do right by them and their pets and farm animals. So give Dr. Holding a shout to keep your animals happy and healthy. Call 515-232-8766. That's 232-8766. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Ed Fallon with you here as we broadcast from Des Moines, Iowa, where some of us are sort of under lockdown, but not entirely. A quick shout out to some of our local partners here, thanks to Bold Iowa, fighting climate change and proposing renewable energy solutions since 2016. Thanks also to Gateway Marketing Cafe, my grocery store, which is still open. It's also a great place for breakfast, lunch, and supper, but because of the crisis, use takeout. And they'd love to have you use their takeout service. That's Gateway Market and Cafe. Welcoming to the program now, Adam Krause. Adam, how are you? I'm doing well, Ed. Thank you. How are you guys? Well, we're hanging in there. Uh, I know the uh, situation yeah. is kind of crazy right now. 
But uh, I know yeah, more and more. Yeah, more and more people are talking about something that you and I share a passion about, and that's raising our own food. And doing that in, ur- in an urban context presents some additional challenges, but also some great opportunities. My understanding is you're, you're working toward trying to create an entire block on the east side of Des Moines where people are focused on, on food production. Yes, that is a big dream that uh, I have and my partner shares with me. Uh, yeah, we live over here on the east side. We have a nice-sized corner lot, a decent-sized house. And uh, we have been, for the past couple of years since we moved here, um, have been sort of incrementally taking uh, baby steps to converting our lawn into garden beds and generally just becoming more self-sufficient, even on an urban lot like ours. Um, the exciting opportunity, it just occurred to us the other day, there are so many empty houses on our block, um, either they're up for rent or they will be soon or they're going up for sale um i have this idea that we just want to put out an invitation for anybody who sort of has that future vision that we have that we're talking about converting our lawns into gardens building a sustainable community around food production and sharing uh, wisdom and knowledge and support for each other uh we're inviting anybody with that future vision to just come out here and Join us. We would love to have a community around us sort of working towards that, that new world that we are sort of trying to build uh, right now within the crumbling remains of the one we are in. Well, and and uh, crumbling remains of what, we, of what we have for our current world. Is that, is that an overstatement? I don't know. And, I mean, <laughs> at this point, nobody can predict the future, obviously. I'm not going to try to go there, but I suppose it's better to be prepared than not prepared. I mean, I'm not disagreeing with you. It's a mess, you know. But uh, yeah. I, I do think yeah. that um, that the part of the solution, the way out, lies in better community connections, uh, more localization of our of our of the key elements of our sustenance, whether that be food, clothing, housing, yeah. energy, water, and uh, I, I like the idea of trying to trying to work with an entire block to build uh, yeah. a connective network of sustainability. And so you've been kind of working incrementally toward that goal on your own property. And uh, you'll probably appreciate yeah. that uh, something that I've, uh, something I struggle with all the time is explaining to people that no, you can't take that vacant lot uh, across the street where there used to be a, 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 you know, a house that got torn down and who knows what was there before. You can't take that lot that's mostly clay and backfill and grow food on it. It's going to take a while to get that to the point where it actually is able to produce anything of value. And I imagine that's part yeah. of the challenge, too, in, in any neighborhood. You know, it's not just an urban problem, too. We, I, we were talking with um, somebody from north of town here, out in the county, who has a similar problem with uh, soil that's been degraded. So, you know, it's not just an urban problem. But, but that's, um, how, do you, how do you address that problem on your own lot? And then thinking beyond that, too, how do you address that problem on your block? Yeah, overall, that's, that's absolutely the truth, especially in an urban setting. However, over, over a bigger sort of area, we live in the middle of the, an area that has the most fertile soil, some of the most fertile soil in the entire, on the entire globe. Um, some of that actually is still kind of left around in the Des Moines area, even within our cities. Um, Good point. We haven't actually had too many problems with bad soil or, or clay-filled soil on our lot in particular. 
Um, however, we still realize that, that, that uh, it's not probably the best soil in, in the urban environment. So we try to compost as much as possible. And that's something that we are, are absolutely increasing uh, our capacity to uh, build really good compost to uh, supplement that, that ground that may or may not be um, ideal or optimal. Um, but I'm, I'm watching a couple of houses down, a couple of lots down. They just dug ground for a couple of new basements for a couple of new homes. And I paid attention to what they did with the soil. Like they stripped the topsoil off, put it in a pile, then they kept digging three, four, five, six feet, ten feet down, however far they go down. And they just piled that deep, deep clay filled soil right on top of the topsoil. Oh, gosh. And who knows what happened to that? What so a waste. That lot will likely be problematic, right? Yeah. What a so, what that that yeah, that that that, that ought to that, yeah. that ought to be criminal. I mean, that's just such a waste. Agreed. Yeah. I agree. I believe in some states they are required to set the topsoil aside at least as a mitigation of uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, when we were fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline, one concession that uh, landowners, farmers, others were able to get the get the uh, company to agree to was that they would separate the topsoil from the subsoil. They didn't always do that. Right, yeah. They would have rather have not have done that. And again, I think it's, uh, you know, people don't think of it as a problem in the urban area. But I, I, you raise a good point. Uh, you know, I, I have farmed on many different lots in Des Moines, and most of them have been okay. Uh, there was one that was not very good at all. But you're right. There's, 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 there's a lot of places where it's still not too bad. And to, you know, when you do have construction, to have somebody come in and just mix the clay and the topsoil, that's, that's just a... Uh, that's, that's not a good idea. Yeah, you, I, I believe that I think the lot that we're on, I mean, it's, it's a house that was built in, I don't know, I think the 30s or 40s. And I imagine that for decades that the topsoil here has been built and rebuilt just with grass clippings. You know, I imagine that there hasn't been a lot of chemical spray on this lawn for quite some time. That's good. Uh, so there's that to consider, too. If you find an old lot, it almost the yard is practically a prairie already <laughs> that might be a good place to start a garden right right yeah so um do you have any other any current neighbors who are interested in uh, working with you on food production we have a couple neighbors that already have their own uh, chickens and uh, our neighbor across the corner corner neighbor across the way um he's got a big garden already um and they're they're totally on board with the idea for sure nice is anybody saving seed from heirloom yeah. varieties uh, we are trying to. Um, I don't know if my neighbors are or not, but that is uh, that's definitely on the list of to dos. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, I'm glad to hear yeah. that there's some folks raising chickens because uh, my my experience, yeah. the, the best route to healthy compost is through a chicken. <laughs> yeah. Literally, literally yeah. through the chicken. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, Ed, we did not uh, we did not participate in the toilet paper pandemic panic. Instead, <laughs> we uh, went out and bought ourselves our very first flock of chickens. We bought six chicks, and then uh, we actually purchased a chicken coop on Amazon and had that delivered uh, just because we were a bit behind the curve here. Uh, so we're very excited uh, that we have our first flock uh, yeah. get ready to go here. Good. And again, the yeah. fact that you have neighbors who have flocks of chickens, that's encouraging too. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, honestly, the east side here, the neighbors either don't care or don't know what you're doing. So it's kind of an ideal situation to... Right. Uh, kind of do what you want with your place. How many how many lots or homes in your you mean within your block or so are up for sale? Yeah, so the 
uh, house next door to us, our landlords own that also. Um, they are currently renovating that and getting that ready to go up for rent, I imagine, sometime in the near future, next few weeks, maybe. Um, the house directly across the street, someone is rehabbing that, and I talked to them. They are going to put it up for sale. The house next door to that house is vacant, and I don't know the status on that house. Mm. Then there are three other houses within just two or three or four lots away from us on our side of the street. Uh, there are three brand-new construction houses going up there. Mm. An additional house for sale down the block, uh, you know, a two-minute walk away. So. Yeah. And do uh, do, do most of them have what? What's that? Do this. They need to come out here and (laughs) whoever you know that wants to get their hands dirty and become pioneers in this new sort of uh, uh, frontier of our urban landscapes. Well, you know, there's a lot of truth to that description. Urban pioneers. Uh, I mean, I I know in some contexts that refers to artists, and I think uh, I think artists, musicians, uh, creative people are are key to any any vibrant community. But I know, for example, in a in a in a community as devastated as Detroit, uh, you saw a lot of people coming back in and trying to do creative things with the lot itself, involving food production. Yes. And uh, yes. There's there's plenty of places here in Des Moines, and probably in most cities in the U.S. where that uh, that strategy might apply. Yeah, absolutely. Detroit, um, obviously just a devastating circumstances with Detroit. Um, but yeah, the rebound in Detroit has been remarkable because of people, like you mentioned, artists and small-scale food producers are, are backfilling that sort of urban environment. Yeah. Um, and that is being repeated in cities all across the Rust Belt. Uh, Des Moines is not immune to uh, the, uh, the decay that's happening uh, I mean, in my own neighborhood, so many houses are empty. So many businesses, buildings are empty. Um, so there's opportunity here. Yeah. And again, I think uh, to, to me, the goal is to have uh, as much local uh, self-reliance as possible. And I'm not talking about each person holding up and, and just hoarding their own, well, not just toilet paper, but everything else. I'm talking about a community effort right. to try to create, um, you know, collective resilience. Uh, food production yes. and, and energy systems as well. Yes. And in some cases, you know, some cases it's poor soil. Some cases it's a lack of knowledge. In some cases, there are rules and regulations that get in the way. You know, I mean, we've been seeing, gradually we've been seeing some of those change in Des Moines. And we are lucky. I mean, I, if there's a city around the country that has a better ordinance on chickens than Des Moines, I don't know what it is, but for as long as I can remember, you've been able to raise up to 30 chickens in Des Moines, which is, which is unusually high, but... But it makes sense. Yeah. I mean, if you really want a good, yeah. healthy flock and want to have some eggs maybe left over to share with other people, and you want to have a young hand, young chicks as well, I mean, 30 is not a bad number. And yeah. you can manage that if you do it, do it appropriately. So, yeah. but the, um, awesome. Yeah. I think part of, part of the challenge is, you know, we, we uh, again, speaking as an omnivore, <laughs> there's also dairy. There's also meat. Um, there's also grain. And some of those things you really can't grow in your backyard. But um, so I, I'm yeah. hoping that, that the the effort to revitalize, you know, one's own personal space for food production is coupled by a community-wide effort to create spaces where people can, where we can, we can support urban farmers who are raising goats or, you know, sheep or, or, or even, even, even fields of grain. You know, I just, they're not, not yeah. just, not just here in Des Moines, but, uh, but in the, in the perimeter of the city. I mean, we have, 
We still have a lot of farmland around this, around the around the metro that's under intense pressure from urban sprawl, where developers are working hard to push them out. And um, mm-hmm. you know, just to have that kind of uh, alliance with our rural neighbors to produce food that isn't going to be trucked in from fifteen hundred miles away, that'd be great. Yes, and the land exists. Um, the resources exist. I believe that there are enough people who have that dream and that vision that it is more possible now than honestly it ever has been. Uh, yes, we, I, we can grow much of our own food on our own lot, but like you said, I'm not going to go get a cow or a goat, butcher my own cow. I, I, you know, I don't have enough land to grow my own wheat. But when you build a community, you can build those networks, and like you said, reappropriating land into more appropriate uses um, based upon the current demand of the times, so to speak. So I believe that uh, it can be done. And one last question, um, Adam. You, you've, uh, you've done a lot of work with rain barrels. A little bit. Then, well, okay. If you've done a little bit, you've done more than I have. That's something I need to get into. But if you, 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 <laughs> okay. you, you, yeah. found, you found a rain barrel to be, I mean, obviously it's, it's a good conservation practice, but it's been helpful as well. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, we have, uh, we have two rain barrels now. Uh, we can hold an equivalent of uh, 110 gallons of rainwater. And oh. using only one of those last year, yeah, one, we don't even have it connected to our entire roof. It's a small, perhaps 20-square-foot piece of roof that rain falls on and that we collect water from. Um, but one 55-gallon container lasted us through the entire winter now i'm not saying we drank we didn't drink the water Ed. we used yeah, that water to, <laughs> to water the plants that we were growing in our house and right. we have a sort of a side business where we have lots of house plants who are growing eventually for sale etc cetera, etc cetera. but the point remains we we didn't spend a dime on watering our plants yeah. the entire year because of one 55 gallon rain barrel now we have two so, yes, right. yeah. I believe collecting rain is an excellent uh, excellent way to save money and use one of the greatest resources that's just falling out of the sky. Excellent. Well, folks, we've been talking with Adam yeah. Krause, who is uh, an urban pioneer, an urban farming pioneer. And if you'd like to get in touch with him and learn more about, more about what's going on on the east side of Des Moines, Adam, how do folks reach you? Yeah, check out uh, my Facebook page. I'm rarely on there, but I think I'll get back on there and start updating things again. Uh, sort of push this conversation forward. Um, so check out Facebook. Um, honestly, I can add if you want to put my phone number up after the show, I'd be totally willing to do that as well. Okay, we'll post this program on Facebook and, and, and create a link for you there. Awesome. All Thank right. you. Thanks, Adam. Folks, we've been talking with Adam Krause. When we come back... Uh, Suman Hawk is going to join us. He's the uh, owner and, and chef at the Hawk Restaurant. Uh, we want to talk with him, get a, more, get a better feel about how restaurants and eating and dining establishments are being affected by the coronavirus crisis. We'll be back in a minute on the Fallon Forum. Gateway Marketing Cafe is your locally owned source for specialty groceries. Enjoy chef-crafted prepared foods, artisan baked goods, organic produce, specialty cheeses, and hand-selected wines and craft beer. Visit the Lively Cafe for breakfast, lunch, and dinner seven days a week. Gateway Market is centrally located on the corner of Martin Luther King Jr. Parkway and Woodland Avenue. Stop by or visit www.gatewaymarket.com for more details. Gateway Market. Good food. Great community. It's important to know where your food comes from. 
at Hawk Restaurant that's easy because 90% comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Located at East 5th and Walnut Street, Hawk is open for lunch and supper Monday through Saturday. From May through October, you'll also find Hawk at the Downtown Farmer's Market serving fantastic breakfast wraps with 100% of the ingredients from Iowa, except for the salt and pepper. Learn more at hawktable.com. That's H-O-Q-Table.com. Welcome back to the Fallon Forum. Again, a quick shout out to some of our local business partners, Ritual Cafe on 13th Street, where fair trade coffee and fair trade tea are available, also an all-vegetarian menu. Ritual, like a lot of places, continues to do takeout orders. Thanks also to Birds and Bees Urban Farm, where you can learn how to turn your yard into dinner. That's birdsbeesurbanfarm.org. All right, speaking of local businesses, folks, again, Ed Fallon with you here, and our guest this segment of the program is Suman Hawk. He's the owner and the chief chef at Hawk Restaurant in the East Village of Des Moines. And again, what's really unique about what you do, Suman, is that nearly all the food you serve comes from Iowa farms and Iowa producers. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yes, our food, over 90% all come from Iowa. We buy whole chicken, whole beef, whole everything. Pretty much we break it down and then and then our change your menu quite often. So, yeah, it's all farm fresh from local. Farm. Yeah, and that's particularly challenging this time of the year. In my experience, March and April are the most difficult months to source locally. Yes, yeah, because it's between two seasons, you know, not many things on that. I still have some root vegetables I'm using, but yeah, not much. I have maybe some greens somebody producing, and that's all right now. Right. And again, now in addition to that uh, challenge that you have because of your focus on local food production, you, like everyone else, has the additional challenge of uh, being a restaurant trying to survive in the coronavirus crisis. Um, and of course, the governor, as have many you know, governors across the country, ordered restaurants to close. And you've had to do that, except you've been able to, like some places, maintain uh, an, an, a, a takeout service, correct? Yes, we are only doing takeout uh, from lunchtime. We're doing 11 o'clock to 2 p.m. And then dinner 5 to 7.30. And then uh, we are using a like, smaller menu, like our lunch menu, to take out also we are doing some kind of like special every day that you know whole day we can do the one special like feature of the day right how's that working out you know it was depends on the day like uh, one day is really good other days not yeah. you know it's not predictable yeah don't, um friday was not great but saturday was good and then today is kind of okay yeah so and how have you noticed that, that the coronavirus situation has had any any effect on your suppliers, the local farms that provide what you need? You know, I think it's not yet, but I don't know. It's like hopefully they're gonna, still going to grow because they're uncertain that I can buy that. You know, if I do only take out, probably I don't have to buy a lot that I used to. So they just don't know what is going to happen, you know, so it's just uncertain. Right my, my, my guess is that it's not going to have too bad of an effect on, on, on food production because, again, I mean, I mean no, no place is exempt from experiencing the coronavirus, so it's very possible that farmers, you know, might be impacted as well. 
but um, perhaps there's less of a chance that since they're already living in a situation where they have less contact with people. And this virus is, um, is all about human beings. It's not going to affect cattle or sheep or, or hogs, or in particular, it's not going to affect vegetables. So um, maybe the food supply will be uh, spared from some of the impacts. Yeah, I think so. You know, I think hopefully, you know, like hopefully they're not, um, hopefully, you know, hopefully they're going to keep growing. But I don't know. It's like if, like I used to buy like, every, for example, I used to buy like 20 pound or 10 pound of grain every week. But now I don't know what, what I'm going to buy next week because the business is like a 5%. Like right. if it's a hundred percent, you know, I'm doing it. So just uncertain. Hopefully they're going to keep going. That's just kind of I don't know. So that that's a really good point that you're 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 functioning at well below what your normal capacity is. Yeah, right. So yeah, because, yeah, it's like you know, like maybe like ten percent on Saturday. Right. We usually do like quite a bit, but it's like nothing compared with that. So the impact on farmers may not be. I mean, the coronavirus itself isn't going to impact them too badly, but the fact that you and other restaurants aren't buying as much food will impact them. Yes, right. So probably. The, I think we should have enough food for when they're going to keep growing, but maybe, maybe summertime, they're not maybe growing as much as they, they do, you know, long run. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I mean, <clears throat> maybe it hurts you, but, uh, but overall the, uh, I mean, people are going to be eating the same amount of food, presumably. So right. maybe, maybe those producers will be selling more to grocery stores uh, instead of yeah, restaurants. I think, I think that there is some, I see some other, uh, Iowa food co-op, I think they are, Ordered this this cycle, they I think I said oh, more than twenty two thousand dollars of sales, so which is like a, their sales went up. You know, probably people want to you know buy all the food and stock up. Right. But yeah, yeah. Which is good for those farmers, but not so good for you as a restaurant owner. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's hard to say exactly how long this is going to persist, but um, you know, some say it's going to be a fairly short term thing, and that's. In that case, that wouldn't be so bad, right? Yeah, that's why I'm hoping for at least you know another week. You know, we, we shut down, we, we will be fine. You know, keep going. But even though another like two weeks, we should be we will be fine. But if it's like a, they go for March and they open back up and then again that they're gonna shut down another two weeks, that's gonna gonna be not good. Yeah. Like, and, yeah. I, and I'm wondering how many other restaurants, huh? I mean, I I don't know how other people are doing. I, are most restaurants offering some kind of takeout service? Yeah, they did last week, but at the beginning of this week, a lot of restaurants, they're not doing it at all. They just shut shut it down. They just found um, it wasn't profitable? Yeah, I don't know what happened. Like, by my house, there is one angry goldfish. They did last week, but they're not doing this week at all. Huh. Well, and that maybe, maybe that will help some of the restaurants that are still still able to offer takeout. But, right, that, 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 that's what we thought. That, you know, thinking, like, hopefully, um, maybe our sales going to go up, but we haven't seen it yet. Yeah. But we'll see. Goes by, days goes by. Well, one of the one of the uh, liabilities here too is, uh, you know, uh, the, is the staff, the wor- the workers, the people who you and other restaurant owners employ. Right. Uh, do you, do you, have you heard that uh, many are being laid off? Yeah, you know what? Yeah, definitely. Like most of them are like front of the house is gone. Like, and then I kept my kitchen staff, three of them, and then I kept the manager. Just keep floating, but if it's keep going right this way, I might have to let uh, you know, manager let go, and then I'm gonna be like doing all this stuff. You'll be doing so, it all yourself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So probably I'm gonna keep some kitchen stuff because it's cooking, all the prepping. If if it's my takeout business, really good. 
they're buying it stuff so probably i need these guys so i'm gonna see why i didn't see next few weeks right. what's gonna happen yeah. yeah and again it may be a short-lived uh, situation but it's hard to say it could go on for a while yeah yeah it's just a scary time now yeah now you are from uh, bangladesh originally yeah and that's a country that's already been impacted by poverty and uh, and certainly by climate change as well because the country is so uh, so so low. I mean, I, I don't know how many feet above sea level the uh, much, the, yeah. Ga- the Ganges River Delta is, but it's not very much, you know. Right. Yeah. Yep. And and now you have the additional crisis of uh, of the of, of the coronavirus. Have you heard stories from back home about how how fo- folks are being impacted by it there? Yeah. So uh, in Bangladesh, like it's became really good last 20 years it's developing a lot but this thing they're gonna push like break on that because all the business like not buying from Bangladesh all the garments you know all the t-shirt shirt so anyways it's gonna shut it down bunch of bunch of business in then Bangladesh let's gonna probably is gonna go up again it was used to be like 1990s you know um they, they shut it down, I heard today. They had done all the school and colleges and all the shopping mall. Hmm. So that would impact a lot, yeah. Yeah, I know, and, and it probably varies too to, from country to country depending upon what kind of response uh, you have to the coronavirus. I'm, right. You know, China, South Korea, Malaysia, Singapore, uh, they, they put down the hammer. I mean, they, they did a lot to really suppress what, uh, what people could do uh, what I what I believe I heard from Hubei province in China was that you, uh, you know, you could only go out for food three times a week, and had to be one person in your home who was designated to do that. That's pretty strict. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think that's one kind of thing. It's kind of better because it, not too many people got infected. Probably, you know. Well, and the and the, and the infection rate currently in China is uh, the the number of new cases per day is at zero. I believe. Right, yeah, I saw there's like nothing, and then same with South Korea. They just yeah. uh, report right. like 67 people like in last week or and, something. And then you have Italy and the United States and, and, and Britain where it's been much more, even though it seems, you know, we're such a land of liberty here, even these restrictions seem very severe, but compared to those countries in, in, in Eastern Asia, uh, it's, right. very, it's very lenient here. And as a result, you know, while we haven't had it, it hasn't hit really bad here yet, and maybe it won't, but uh, the indications are we might be in trouble. I mean, Italy is a great example. That's uh, That country has been hit really, really hard. Yeah, because, you know, I've been in Italy, like, uh, last year, and then people in the restaurant, like, we have some kind of rules, like, how many people can be in the restaurant. I don't know if they have it, that kind of rules or not, because so many people in that one restaurant, you know, that everybody's mm, smoking, yeah. you know, it, this kind of stuff probably right. happened fast. Yeah, everybody, yeah. yeah. So in, in, in Bangladesh, where do you, do you happen to know what kind of restrictions have they been closer to the Chinese and South Korean model or closer to the Italian and U.S. Uh, approach? I think probably U.S. approach because Bangladeshi people don't like to listen. It's a democratic country, but, you know, people just don't like to people just go out do stuff, you know. <laughs> people, yeah, people think that oh, they'll be fine, right. you know. But, you know, what? one thing is a good thing in Bangladesh, because Bangladesh is a Muslim country. Uh, people pray five times, and people before praying five times, they have to wash their hand and face, you know. Uh-huh. They do their big home. That helped a lot because... Every five, you know, at least you five times, you washing your hand. Okay, so there's is, the the yeah. lesson there is, um, 
Uh, converting to Islam is a good way to fight the coronavirus. <laughs> some people say that. So, so some people are. Uh, some people mention it. That, right, right. Interesting. I think it's a good idea to you know wash your hands and right. stuff. Yeah. Well, sure. That that's that advice is universal and it's very basic and it makes a lot of sense. You know. Right. I'm yeah. surprised people aren't spending more time and money stocking up on soap than they are on toilet paper. <laughs> I know yeah. that. That's crazy. Yeah. I went to like a few other places and then every shelf is open. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing there empty. Anyway, so you know you've got you've got a challenge ahead of you here, Suman. You've got uh, a restaurant that is almost exclusively focused on local foods. Yeah, that also may be an opportunity because uh, again, your your um, the source of your product is a lot closer than uh, what some people have to rely on. And I don't know how transporting food across fifteen hundred miles of interstate is going to be affected. That may be a that may be problematic as well. You at least have a have a more local source to. That's to, um, true. Yeah, if I need something, my some of the ground beef or beef, I have the farmer. They say one farmer said they just have a, like old cow. They make it into bucket ground yeah, beef, yeah. so I can get it if you need it. Yeah, good. Well, yeah. again, I, I wish you I wish you luck. Um, again, folks, uh, Suman Hawk at Hawk Restaurant, uh, one of the uh, handful of restaurants in the Des Moines Metro that are still doing takeout and could definitely use the support of the local community. So think about that if we, uh, I mean, there's so many things we need to be doing to fight back against the coronavirus. And one of them is supporting our neighbors in every single capacity possible. So again, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Thanks for All having right. me. All right, folks, again, thanks for tuning into the Fallon Forum today. The show will rebroadcast on KHOI 89.1 FM in Ames, also on KICI FM in Iowa City, and on stations in Fayette, Missouri, New Orleans, Louisiana, uh, Columbus, Ohio, and Taos, New Mexico. It's also available as a podcast on the Fallon Forum website. That's fallonforum.com. And we try to get these programs up in limited capacity on the Fallon Forum website as well. Again, this is Ed Fallon, your host. Thanks to our production team of Kathy Burns and Sherry Hardina. We'll be back next week on the same format. <laughs>